great privilege to be here with you again. And I have thoroughly enjoyed the music of this evening. And as I sat there last night, uh, I have uh, I've enjoyed many wonderful services in this room throughout the years, but never more than last night. And you minister to me. And uh, you ought not assume that every preacher is always running on a full tank. And you helped me last night, and uh, I appreciate that. Those of you who, who were here, who worshiped, it was a wonderful night. It's a wonderful night. If you're watching it, you can't feel it. Just can't. You got to be here. You got to be here in those moments. I'm traveling with my family this week. They haven't been here for many years. And if you want to know what it's like to travel with my wife and children, I can give you an antidote. The fire alarm came on yesterday at our hotel room. And Sam is four. He began yelling, we're all going to die. <laughs> and Maria, age six, began yelling, I'm too young to die. <laughs> and that's what it's like living in my house. <laughs> Pastor, thank you for the invitation. Sister Donna, God bless you. I want to read to you uh, four verses from the first uh, chapter, uh, first uh, book of Peter, chapter 5. The words of the Lord come to us like this. Be sober, be vigilant. Now, some of your translations reverse those words, and some say alert and sober, but the, the uh, context is, is the same. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. My wife and I were in Wyoming a few weeks ago. Uh, the year before, we went to Montana, and one of the things that we like to do in, in Montana and in Wyoming is we like to go hiking. And this year in, in Wyoming, we went with family members. Now, uh, I've seen a lot of bear on, on the hiking uh, paths. And it's always a little nerve-wracking when there's a bear and there's nothing between you and it. And you got to trust in their goodwill. Uh, they say that with grizzly bears, one out of 25 is a bad bear. And so the problem is they don't wear jerseys. So you don't know if that's number 25 or not. But you know you got a 96% chance of not having a problem. And so there's always a bit of anxiety. But in Wyoming, we, we hit the trail for the first day. And, and right there in the distance, we saw a mother with two babies moving that way. And then on around the lake, we saw a bear moving up the hill. I figured that was the father going that way and the mother and babies going that way. But I don't know. I have a conversation. But... Strangely enough, on this trip, there was no anxiety about the bear because I was with five other people and I knew I wasn't the slowest. So that relieved the anxiety to know that I was not the most devourable person in the trek. Now, it seems to me that Peter is getting at something here in this text. Uh, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil's like a lion, and he seeks whom he may devour. And I take it that when he says who he may devour, he's saying that not everybody is devourable. Uh, who he may devour, I think at the very least, he might be saying there are some that are more devourable than others. Not everybody's on, on the same level. Some are a little slower without the bear mace. Some are moving a little faster and they're armed. 
so to speak. But not everybody is equally attackable to Satan. So he says, uh, you and I ought to make ourselves less devourable because he seeks whom he may devour. And again, I want to be one of the ones that is less likely to get devoured than maybe others. So then Peter begins to describe to us, well, what would be the characteristics of a person who isn't really all that easily devourable by Satan? Uh, there are people who are more devourable. Maybe there are people that are less. But then what would be the difference in the two? And so then he starts to give us characteristics. And one characteristic of a person who is actually less devourable by Satan than others is that they're vigilant. Uh, vigilant means that they're alert. Uh, that they're aware of their surroundings. They don't walk through life with blinders on. They, they, they see what's happening. That's something we try to teach our kids, isn't it? Early on, we try to teach them to be aware of their surroundings, and we want them to be aware of particularly dangerous surroundings. We don't want them around things that could hurt them, so we, we try to teach them about traffic and about things that are hot and maybe teach them about water. We, we try to just make them very alert and very aware of their surroundings because if they're not all that aware, then that makes life a little more dangerous for them. It's important to be aware. Uh, my brother uh, always has good dogs. Uh, it, it seems like he always gets the best dog that is, is available. His dogs are great. And I was talking to him once, and I said, how do you get such good dogs? You go from one good dog to another. And he said, well, he said, the thing about a dog is that a good dog is a smart dog, and a smart dog is an alert dog. And so if you have a dog that can't walk beside of you without getting over in your walkway, that's a dumb dog. It will never be a good dog. I mean, you might as well shoot it or give it away, but it's never going to be a good dog. Uh, a good dog is an aware dog. It, it can track where you're going. It knows where it's going. And so I think what the Bible here, again, is saying, Peter is saying, if we're not going to be so devourable by Satan, we need to be aware of our surroundings. Paul will say, I think, in 2 Corinthians 2.11, that we are not ignorant of the devices of Satan. And the context of that passage is in regards to forgiveness. And Paul is talking about people who have difficulty forgiving. But he says, but we're not ignorant. We know that Satan would try to get us to carry a grudge, but we're not ignorant of that device. And so what is he saying? He's saying, again, we are aware of what Satan is doing in the world. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says this, that we ought to lay aside the weights that hinder us, but we ought to deal with the sin that so easily besets us as well. And so to lay aside the sin that so easily besets us means to some degree that we're aware of the issues that we have. We're aware that we have a tendency towards materialism or towards sensual issues. We're aware of the areas that we are more likely to be tempted and to be quite honest, that we have weaknesses in. See, I have many areas that I have to watch. The biggest temptation that I have after 9 o'clock at my house is, is in the cabinet above the stove. Uh, it's the Pringles. So when I'm walking through the house at night, I've told you maybe this, they whisper to me and they know my name. And uh, they always say the same thing. They say the same thing that your temptation says. They say, come over here. It won't get out of hand, just four or five. Well, it's not going to get out of hand. Just you can stop anytime you want to. And then it says, and I won't tell your wife. <laughs> and then if that doesn't work, they, they whisper, uh, and this will be the last time. It won't happen again. It won't happen again. And that's what your temptation says, isn't it? I mean, I'm talking to at least one lady 
who owes far more on her credit cards than her husband knows because the sales talk to her. They say the same thing. They say, just four or five items. You need it for camp meeting. You need a new dress for camp meeting. And your husband will never find out because he can't read a credit card bill. And this will be the last time because you go home, you lose 20 pounds, you get your whole other wardrobe back, you won't need the rest. This will be the last time. And so we need to be aware of what Satan is doing in our lives. That's, that's the context. But then he also says, but you also have to be sober. You need to be alert and aware to what Satan is doing, but you also need to be sober-minded. Now let me try to say this in a way that doesn't insult your intelligence. I'm going to talk like a famous politician today. I'm going to dumb it down for you. Um, what does it mean to be unsober? Well, let's put it this way. There's you, and then there's things that you could invite into your life that if you invited them into your life, they would control you. Now, that's not everything. So with food, oftentimes we talk about this in terms of alcohol. Alcohol, if you bring it into your life, has the power to control you and alter you and call the shots in your life. Well, that's not true of all food. The last time I was in Newark, I was leaving, and I got the breakfast of champions as I traveled. I stopped down at the, uh, the, uh, their, uh, the gas station going out of town. I got me a coffee and two hot dogs. And that's great for the first 50 miles, and then it extends the trip. But I could still drive. They didn't make me unsober. They're outside. I invited them in. I mean, it wouldn't have been the best thing to eat, but it didn't take control of my life. But again, there are other things that you could invite into your life that would be controlling issues. And when you invite those things into your life, they give Satan a chance to work in your life. Because the truth of the matter is, is that anything that begins to control you is also a tool of Satan in your life. Nobody ever got more holy the more they drank. You don't go down there, and the more you drink, the more holy you get. The more you drink, you don't say, you know what, I need to really go home and be a good father. That's what I need to do. That's not what you do. You don't drink six or seven beers and say, you know what, we need to go down and volunteer at Habitat Humanity to build a house. That's not what you do when you drink. You get more and more devious and crooked in your behaviors and your thinking. So when you become unsober, in any way, you give room for Satan. You become more of a prey for Satan. Now you say, well, that's alcohol, that's drugs, that's, that's things that uh, we, could, uh, we could name, uh, that the CDC would name for us. But that's also a lot of other things. For instance, one thing that would make you unsober, to be quite frank with you, is watching too much, I hate to say this, but watching too much news. I mean, there's, there's people that are really smart. They used to be smart until they started watching all the news for 24 hours, and now they're really dumb. They're not, they're sort of unsober. It sort of did something in their life. Uh, Hanging around people and letting them bring their grudges into your heart, that makes you unsober in many ways. I mean, there are people that will really try to take all their hurts, all their pains, everything bad that's happened to them, and make you want to feel against those people uh, like they do. And that, that adjusts your thinking to allow them to bring their hate and resentments into your heart and to bring you into that conversation. That makes you unsober. You're not thinking right. You're thinking through the lens of a person who also isn't thinking right. Makes you unsober. Uh, allowing people generally to influence you is not a great thing. I, I read this article in September in Newsweek, and uh, I find the numbers to be almost unbelievable except for the fact that it's a study by George Barna, who over the last 30 years has been pretty good with his numbers. 
He says of generation Z, that's, I believe ages 12 to 25, that of that group right now in America, 30 to 40 percent, three or four out of 10 of people ages 12 to 25 identify as either LGBT or Q. Now, the issue with that is that those who would say that sexuality is a besetting sin or something that they struggle with has always been 5%, give or take, historically going back 100 years. So then how did it all of a sudden go from 5% to 30 to 40%? And I think the simple answer is that because 85% of people who claim to be one of those categories really don't have a legitimate struggle with that issue. They're being affected. It's a social thing. It's a peer issue. And so what are they doing? Well, they're unsober. They're allowing what's happening in the culture, what's happening in their circle of friends to get inside of them, and it's making them even walk around not knowing who they are or saying that they're something when they're really not. And so, again, the Bible says, if you're not going to be easy prey of Satan, you need to be aware, you need to be alert, but you also need to be sober-minded. You ought to watch what you let into your life. And then he says, not only should we be sober and vigilant, but that in verse 9, we ought to resist him. So we ought to fight against Satan. It's a real problem when the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, and you don't even try to get to church. You don't even try to resist him when he keeps you out of church. You sort of join in with that and and, and you live a life, I mean, if Satan doesn't give you an excuse, you find an excuse. You're not resisting his temptation to draw you away from the body of Christ. That's a real problem. It's a real problem when Satan is trying to get you to take vengeance and to act on your own free will and, and to, to strike back and to violate the command to, to not return evil for evil, to turn the other cheek and you're sitting there plotting on how you're going to get revenge. You're not even resisting. You don't even recognize that as a temptation, but you're actually, you're actually sort of joining with the thought process that he's sowing in your mind. The Bible says you ought to resist Satan. Stand against him. Fight against him. Take your stand. Don't join him. Whatever you do, don't lock arms with him for crying out loud. I remember... We'd been married for we'd been married for maybe two or three years. <clears throat> and uh, my wife is a very good person. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like that, and she's just even, you know, which is, makes it for a good balance, right? I, she told me that she was mad at me the whole time she was pregnant with our second daughter, and I don't ever remember her being mad. That's how nice she is. She was angry at me for nine months, and I didn't even know it. Maybe that's how unaware I am. But, but I, I remember the second, third, fourth year, and uh, I, I, she was driving me nuts too. And I don't really even remember why. That's a God thing that you can't remember. But I remember, I remember one time I was thinking, and I, I don't know why I thought this, I had a conversation with my father, who's a minister, gone on to be with the Lord. And I don't even know the context or how we started talking about this, but we would sit around and talk about hypothetical situations. And he said, I don't remember the context, he said, I think that you could probably, in the ministry, you could probably survive getting rid of one wife. I think you could probably put one away and it wouldn't kill your ministry. You could probably get away with it. I don't know how that came about. But I was sitting there thinking, I got one get out of marriage card and I'm going to use it. And see, see, but that, that's, that's, see, that's not resisting the devil. And thank God I begin to remember my vows. And thank God I begin to say, you know what? 
This thought, we're early, haven't had any kids yet, maybe somebody get, get out. Uh, but, but, but then it's like, no, I made a vow. She made a vow. We're one flesh. We're united. One man, one woman for life. And I have to resist that thought that's been put in my mind. And we were out hiking in Wyoming, and, and there she is, redhead, up the trail, sun shining on her hair, looking mighty Good for a woman with four kids. Good for a woman anywhere. And uh, it's like, thank the Lord I resisted the devil. You have to resist the devil. And then he says here, I'll move quickly. He says, resist him steadfast in the faith. So be alert. Be sober. Watch what you let in your, your heart. Resist but also be strong in the faith. In other words, believe the word of God. I mean, you can talk about faith in complicated ways, but the bottom line is faith is walking by what you hear, not by what you see. Faith is essentially taking the word of God and believing it and walking by it. So believe God, obey God, trust that what God is telling you is the right way is the right way for you to go. You know, most of the guys in the Bible that got off, and maybe all of them, I hadn't thought about it, but maybe everybody in the Bible who ever got off, got off because they stopped walking by faith. They just stopped believing God and what God said. I was thinking about Samson a couple days ago, and you look at the life of Samson and say, what an idiot. I mean, that guy... How stupid do you have to be to tell Delilah the secret to your strength? I mean, what a moron. And, but, but, it, but if you know the account, you know why he did it. The reason that he does it is because the Nazarite vow was to grow your hair but it was also not to touch a dead thing or drink wine or hard drink. It was threefold. It just wasn't the hair. It was threefold. And for 20 years, he'd been touching dead stuff. I mean, he killed a 1,000 people with the jawbone of a donkey. That wasn't a live donkey attached to the jawbone. Something dead. And one time he got a honey out of the stomach of a dead lion. The lion was dead. He'd been breaking that law for 20 years. And, and, and you know, hanging around with the women that he did, he was taking wine. I mean, there's a place in Judges 14 where he marries Timnah, and they have a week-long celebration down there with, uh, with the pagans. You know they were out down there drinking. They weren't down there drinking coffee. They were, they, I mean, it was a wild party going on. So for 20 years... Samson had been breaking the vow and God had been long-suffering to him. So he didn't think the vow mattered. He broke the first two. Why not break the third? God keeps forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. But God says, you reap what you sow and I won't strive with you forever. I mean, the word of God was, Samson, live right, keep your vow. I'm not going to be... Uh, long-suffering all this time, and God was long-suffering and long-suffering, but at some point, Samson didn't believe that God would actually bring judgment on him till he woke up, and he still thought he had his strength. What was that? He wasn't a man of faith. Wasn't a man of faith, didn't believe the word of God. So the Bible says here that you and I ought to be sober and vigilant. We ought to resist the devil and we got to be steadfast in the faith or else we become easy prey for Satan. Now, then there's a line here that it didn't dawn on me uh, when I read it I, that it connects to the other verses. I mean, I get that. I get that if you want to resist or... Uh, oppose the devil or, or not be used of Satan, 
that you ought to be sober-minded. I, I, I get that. That you ought to be alert. That you ought to resist him. That you ought to be a person of faith. But, but then he says in verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And I had to work on that. I get the first four, but this fifth one, he says, remember, if you're going to resist the devil, remember that you're not the only one who's suffering. And I thought, that's a non sequitur. I, I get the other four. The, four. the other four are pretty simple. But if you're going to resist and stand against the devil, by all means, remember that you don't suffer alone. But then I thought about that. And in moments of great temptation in my life, hasn't that been what Satan has done to me? He, he basically comes along and he makes you feel like you're the only one going through this. You're all alone. Nobody else understands what you're going through. I'm the only one suffering in this way. I'm the only one with this struggle. I'm the only one who's in a bad marriage. I'm the only one who's got a terrible boss. I'm the only one who has health problems like this. I'm the only one who's struggling financially. I'm the only one who's in a church situation that I don't like. I'm the only one. And then out of that, don't we sort of just step up and I mean, at least we're tempted to take it into our own hands. So he says, remember, if you're going to stand against the devil, remember that you don't suffer alone. You're not the only one. You can't stand up and say, nobody cares, nobody understands, nobody gets it like I do, nobody is walking this path, nobody's ever been in this kind of house, nobody gets it, other people do get it. Other people do matter. You're not the only one. There are others who are fighting the same battle you're fighting. And so stand. They're standing, you stand. And listen, if nobody else knows, if nobody else understands, if nobody cares, if nobody's ever walked down that road, Jesus Christ has been down that road. He knows, he understands, he was sinless, and so you can be too. I mean, you think about Jesus. You say he doesn't understand. Jesus doesn't understand what it is to be dirt poor and not know where your next dollar's coming from. Really? He didn't have a place to lay his head. He had to fish for money. Of course he understands what it means to be dirt poor. You say, well, Jesus, Jesus could never understand what it's like to be physically abused like me. He doesn't know what it's like to be a battered wife. He doesn't know what it's like to be a kid that was physically abused. Really? Do you know about the crucifixion? Do you know what they did to him? He knows what physical abuse looks like. You say, well, no, well, Jesus might understand physical abuse. Jesus could never understand sexual abuse. That never happened to him. Well, maybe not. I don't. The Bible doesn't say that ever happened to Jesus, but it will say this. Jesus knows what it is to be absolutely physically humiliated. Because when they marched him through that town, he didn't have a stitch of clothes on except that crown they shoved down his head. They marched him naked through the town. They spit on him. They hung him on a cross naked. They physically humiliated the man. And he knows what that feels like. You say, well, Jesus doesn't understand what unfulfilled longing is. I mean, Jesus could, you know, I, 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 want, to be, I want to be married. I want the vision. I have a vision of my life, and it seems like it's been absolutely denied to me. Jesus can't understand what that's like. He had the gift of singleness. Yeah, but Jesus knows what it's like to want something so bad and it not be given to him. Because when he sits and he overlooks Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under 
under its wings, but you wouldn't let me. You don't think that his heart is breaking when he looks at those people and he says, I'd give it anything if you would have loved me, if you would have come to me. He knows what it is to want something so deeply, but it be denied him. He said, well, Jesus, Jesus doesn't understand identity issues. I mean, Jesus wouldn't understand what it's like to think you're a man in a body of a woman or something like that. Yeah, you're right. But he was fully God and fully human. He had his own identity problem. I don't know what it's like to be fully God and fully human. I mean, there's stuff to work out there. I mean, he knows what it's like to have to work on identity issues. He said, well, God, Jesus, Jesus would not understand what it's like to have an addiction. I got an addiction, and, and, and my skin crawls, and I mean, you don't know what it's like to lay there sweating and I don't want to trigger anybody, I'll stop. Um, but you don't understand what, what an addiction feels like. Yeah, but, but see, Jesus knows what it's like to face the complete and total power of hell against them. Jesus does get that. Jesus faced all the devils, all the demons, one devil, lots of demons, the Roman Empire, Everything hell could throw at a person, they threw at Jesus Christ. He knows what temptation is. He knows, he understands that. I mean, listen, I don't think that you and I would ever face the temptation Jesus did because we would probably collapse before he got to that point. We are hedged about. Satan's on a chain with us. Satan wasn't on a chain with Jesus. There was full force of Satan and demonic attack coming against Satan. Against Jesus, pardon me. So he understands. You say, well, Jesus, you know, he doesn't know what it's like to try to pastor in the 21st century. Really? How many times did he try to wake them up for the prayer meeting and they were out? He knows what the 21st century is like. He can't get them to wake up. He understands that. You say, well, well listen, well, Jesus, I'll tell you something. Jesus doesn't know. He doesn't know what it's like to have cancer. Never had cancer. Yeah, but Jesus knows what it's like to know he's got less than six months to live. Jesus knows what it's like to know he's not going to make the week out. Jesus knows what it's like to be 30 years old and to know he won't make it to 34. So, so Jesus knows there's nothing that you can go through that Jesus doesn't know. He understands you're not alone. You're not misunderstood. Don't let Satan come to you and say, well, you're the only one. God doesn't understand. No, Jesus understands exactly what we're going through. And not only that, Jesus can help us. He's able to aid us, the Bible says, in our time of temptation. He's able to strengthen us. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to keep us from falling. That's a beautiful thing about Jesus. He just doesn't understand. He's able to do something for us. He's able to help us in our time of need, in our time of struggle. I was thinking uh, the other day, thinking about, uh, and, and I'd, I'd heard this a while back, <clears throat> the, the uh, bulls that they use in, in uh South America for, for bullfighting. Um, th they say that it's more humane now. I don't know. But, but I know you go back 50, 60 years, and you think of the bulls. Um, they would prepare the bulls for the arena. And uh, I understand that they would, uh, they would start by not feeding them for three or four days. And then they would, uh, they would put cotton in their nose to, to keep them from having as much energy and strength. And then they would put cotton in their ears to sort of disorient them. Sometimes they would rub Vaseline in their eyes so that they couldn't, couldn't see clearly. 
And at other times, they would put them in total darkness for two or three days. So that when they hit the, the ring, uh, they, they were disoriented, they didn't see well, they were hungry, and uh, they were weakened. And then when the day of the bullfight came, the, the bullfight has three acts to it. So, so the first act with the bull is, the, is they come out and they wave the, uh, the red capes. See how quick he is. And, and then the, the picadors ride in with, uh, and they're on horses, and they've got this big metal stake. So this, this great beast, the, 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 the trick is to get near him and to drive this metal stake in on his neck to break the muscles of the neck <clears throat> and uh, so that he can't get his head up. So the first act, this, this, this great animal is to get him where he can't get his head up and to break the tendons, break the uh, muscles in the neck. And, and so then comes the second act. And out comes six guys, six spears, two, two and a half feet long. And, and again, they're going after the neck. But they're also trying to draw as much blood as they can to weaken them. But they, they have to make sure that his head can't get up. So there are six Stakes go into him. Some might puncture a lung, but, but they're, they're aiming for the neck and then to bleed him. And then by that time, you know, the hero comes out, the matador, who when you think about it, is not that much of a hero. Because the uh, beast can't get his head up. And he's bleeding, and he's got Vaseline in his eyes. He can't hear, and he can't, can't see all that well. He's disoriented. And so the matador then plays with him for a few minutes, and sometimes he'll grab his horn and mess with him, and sometimes kneel down in front of him and taunt him. And then when the game is up, he takes the sword and he rams it into him and the goal is to explode his heart where he dies suddenly there. <laughs> um, see, sometimes you can think that you're like that bull. You know, you can feel like you didn't get a great start in life. Satan has been working against you. You, you didn't have a good home life. You didn't, you, you didn't get, a, get a good start. So it's like you started life with the Vaseline in your eyes and the, in your stuff in your ears. And I mean, I mean, you start in life and... Nobody loved me and nobody cared for me and I'm already broken. And then you, then you go out in life and, and it's like Satan is waving the cape and behind the cape is just nothing but air and it might be a relationship or it might be a job or it, it might be a hope or a dream and, and you charge at those things and it's nothing but air. And then as, as you go, it, it can seem like Satan is sending the demons. And the goal is to break you so that you can't get your head up. And there's the broken relationships. And there's the losses and there's the heartache. There's the pain. The hurt. The thing that you thought would start well and it ended poorly, you end up in a place like this and 
Satan has really just done a number on you. You you think that way. Didn't start well, broken dreams, and now I can't get my head up. But but I, I, I guess what I'm trying to tell you is you're not that bull. You're not. Do you know who the bull was? It was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who got drugged through the streets. It was Jesus that got ravaged. It was Jesus that took the full force of Satan in his life. It was Jesus that they nailed to the cross. Jesus was the bull. But, but the Bible says that Jesus came off the tree, and he was resurrected. And so when he came off the tree, he didn't just come off limping, but Hebrews chapter 2 says that he himself likewise shared in our lives that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, and that's the devil. The Bible says in Colossians that when he died, he took captivity or captivity captive and and he led the devil and the demons through a spiritual, uh, spiritual circus, so to speak, or a spiritual parade. He took them captive. He defeated them on the cross. And we know that he defeated them because one of the things the Bible says is that now there is no condemnation. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty for our sins so that the devil can no longer bring up condemnation towards us uh, in regards to unrepented sins. He crushed the ability of Satan to hold you in a place of guilt. if You've repented. And then not only that, it says that he broke his power to hold death against us. People who have been afraid of death need not fear because through Jesus Christ there's now a pathway to heaven. The sins can be gone and we can go to heaven as he was resurrected so we could be resurrected. But even more than that, he faced all the powers of hell. Everything came against him and he sinned not. So he faced every demon in the world and they could not make him do what he did not want to do. And so you and I have the assurance that Satan can't make us do anything we want to do. We can live holy. We can live righteously. There's no temptation. There's no demon. There's no army of demons that can keep us from being what God does not want us to be. And see, what I'm I'm preaching to you is deliverance today. And, And maybe somebody needs to hear that because you're not in a place maybe where you're living a victorious life. I'm preaching to some of you who say, yeah, I I need to be more aware. I need to be more sober. I I need to resist them better. I need to have more faith. But, But some of you have been beaten down and you've been defeated by the devil and it's time to get your head back up. Jesus Christ can restore. He can cleanse. He can help you. He can put you back where you need to be. There's no power on earth. There's no power in in eternity that can stand against him. He can raise you up. You say, grief has defeated me. Grief has knocked me down. There's one who raises the head of those who mourn and wipes away tears. You say, addictions have taken over my life. There is one who speaks power over addictions. There's nothing beyond his control. He's able to cleanse. He's able to empower. He's able to restore. Say, well, I've I've got this marriage that isn't working. Jesus Christ can restore marriages. He can break what the devil has done in your marriage, in your family. He can destroy. He raises the head. He defeats the devil. He cleanses. He takes out the spears. He takes out the jabs. He heals the brokenness in our lives. He restores us. He cleanses our minds. He cleanses our eyes. He's able to do that in our lives. And I feel this. I don't think you feel it, but I feel it. Jesus Christ is able. Some of you have been beaten by the devil long enough. 
been beaten by the devil long enough. Maybe you've come in with your head low today. You don't have to leave here low. You don't have to leave here low. We have a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. I like how this passage ended here. It says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Stand with me. You'll help me quit. One of, the, one of the mistakes that gets made in the world today is that people look at Jesus and they say he's a good example. I ought to live my life after Jesus. If I could, if I could begin to model my life after Jesus, that, that's what would change my life and lead me where I need to be. But, but we've said this before. Knowing what Jesus does and did doesn't make you able to do it. I can watch a baseball player throw a 100 mile an hour fastball. That doesn't mean I can do it. I can watch Jesus live a perfect life, a victorious life. I watch him suffer and not curse his enemies. I can watch him be drugged through town and humiliated. I watch him hung on a cross. I can see his kindness and his generosity. I can see his mercy. I can see his love. See his forgiveness. That doesn't mean I can do it. I have to be empowered to do it. I can see his victory over the devil. But that doesn't mean I'll be victorious unless I have the power that he had. The Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can be in you and I. I got an addiction. Got something that's binding me. Your head's going to hang low till you get empowered to fix it. Say our marriage, we don't know what our future holds. Been tough run. Been tough run. The only way this marriage is going to go forward is for us to have deep forgiveness. There's a lot of stuff in our marriage, and unless we can forgive each other deeply, it's a hopeless case. You need to be empowered to do that. You got to have power. That can only come through Jesus Christ. And if you're here with a need tonight, I want to invite you to come. Say, Lord Jesus, my head is low. Maybe it's my fault. I haven't been aware or alert or sober. I haven't obeyed you like I should. And Satan has taken advantage of that. But will you restore me? Will you help me? Will you cleanse me of my sin? And will you give me again the power to live a victorious life? The only thing that's going to make a difference is I hope you feel that deeply. I hope you feel your inadequacy. But I pray the name of the Holy Spirit that you'll know that there's a way forward. And that's 
Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who stand here. Feels like there's been a disconnect in the between the pulpit and the pew. Don't fully understand it. Maybe there's people here that you would rather not, or that state would rather not hear this message. But Father, there are some heads that are bowed low here. Lives that are broken. Some people that have been ravaged like a bull in the arena. The name of Jesus Christ. Will you raise their heads? Will you deliver them? Will you heal their hearts? Heal their relationships. Restore what the locusts have stole. Restore the joy of their salvation. Send the spirit which they've quenched in great power again. name of Christ Jesus we ask it. Amen. God bless you.